This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Eric Morshauser. Our dinosaur of the day is Eustreptospondylus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But before we get into all that, we want to thank our patrons, Chris, Nicholas, Kyle, and Betsy. Thank you so much for your support. And it means a lot to us. And if you want to join this awesome group of people or check out some of our other reward tiers, then look up our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping right into the news, first we have a couple articles about teeth, which is pretty enthralling depending on how into teeth you are. The first one that I want to mention is actually an SVP article, and it kind of talked about how Modern grazers have what's called prismatic enamel, which apparently is almost like a fiberglass structure. It really strengthens the teeth, having these prisms in it. And they also create what's called fracture resistance. Specifically, grazing mammals have this, like if you think of like a cow or something. And when they're grinding their teeth, since they're picking up the grass off the ground, if they, say, get like a little pebble in there, they could break a tooth. So they have this fancy fracture-resistant prisms in their enamel, and that prevents the crack from spreading throughout the tooth, and it kind of stops the crack from going too far and breaking things. So It's good because there are no dentists. Yeah, and they really rely on those teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so... Some dinosaurs had teeth that were kind of similar in that they were also grinding up plants and they used things that are called dental batteries. And we've talked about those a little bit before. And potentially what can happen is if things start wearing unevenly, you can get things called wave mouth, which is something that horses get. Uh-huh. And it basically makes it's called wave mouth because basically the upper and lower row of teeth have like a wave shape to them. So you imagine like. The front teeth on the bottom are taller and shorter on the top, and then you go farther back and it kind of makes a wave shape on the bottom, and then you have the opposite wave shape on the top, which is obviously not ideal for eating. But yeah, that kind of thing can happen if you get uneven wear on your teeth. So they were trying to figure out if dinosaurs had any problems like this. So they simulated tooth wear using the material properties of the teeth that they had fossils of. And they found out that dinosaurs didn't have this fancy fiberglass-like 
prismatic enamel, but they have what's called wavy enamel, and it was kind of the shape of the structure of the enamel itself effectively reduces the risk of enamel fracture in a very similar way to those enamel prisms in modern animals. So that was pretty cool, and obviously something that you'd want if you were an herbivore grinding up lots of plants. Definitely. But then there's a new article that looked at some of the differences in structure in the teeth between different kinds of dinosaurs. And this group used something called third harmonic generation or THG microscopy, which is used only with specific structures. So it kind of relies on the structure of the material in order for it to be effective. And it kind of needs a pattern and a certain layout in order to work. And it's because they shine a laser light in one side of it and the amount of laser light that passes through it gives you some 3D information about the structure of the material. It's a really cool technique and it's pretty new. Funny enough, one of the main benefits to it is that it can be used on living cells and then we're using it on these fossils that are like 100 million years since they were alive and, you know, basically just rock. (laughs) (laughs) But it still works really well. And they used it to find differences between the tissues in the dinosaur's teeth. For example, there's this part of the tooth called the dentino enamel junction. So it's the part where the tough part of the tooth on the outside meets the softer inside of the tooth. And based on the tubules that are inside that area and kind of their density and and the number of times that they branch out, so the kind of the shape of them, you can determine some things about the strength of the teeth and potentially what they might have wanted to eat. One interesting thing that they found was that when they compared the troodon teeth to some of the other dinosaur teeth, they found that the troodons have, quote, highly carnivorous theropod, end quote, like teeth. So similar to Carcharodontosaurus, for instance, which obviously ate a lot of meat because that definitely wasn't grazing. It didn't even have front arms to get (laughs) down to the ground or get at plants and things. So... Ultimately, they reasoned that, quote, Troodon probably had a diet high in softer prey items and was not processing tough plant material, end quote. And that's because it had some characteristics like the inner structure that was similar to these carnivores, but the outer shape doesn't look like a typical carnivorous diet. That's how they decided that it probably had to be a softer meat that they were chewing into. So it's another good example of high-tech microscopy and how it can give us more information about dinosaurs, even fossils that we've had for a long time. Next up, there's a new study looking at why modern birds look so similar. (laughs) And basically, we're talking about within a species. And so if you look at a seagull, it basically looks the same as any other seagull. They're all kind of the same size and shape. And, you know, down to the point where you can measure these tiny differences in different species of birds by just like a slight difference in their beak or their wing or a pattern or something. So it's quite a bit different than a lot of mammals and like even people because, you know, you can have two human men that are vastly different heights and weights and proportions and things like that, whereas you'd never see birds that were so different. Comparatively, crocodiles actually have quite a bit of what's called intraspecific variation. And that means just within the species, the amount of different 
kind of shapes and sizes and things that you get. So the question is, how did birds arrive at such low variation? And then, you know, how much did dinosaurs have? Since obviously crocodiles are also related to dinosaurs and so are birds. So where did that kind of intraspecific variation go away? So Christopher Griffin and Sterling Nesbitt recently looked at a huge group of Coelophysis from back of the Triassic and early Jurassic to see if these early dinosaurs had a lot of intraspecific variation. And the short answer is that they did. <laughs> they did some cool analyses to kind of test all this out. But basically, yeah, they looked totally different and they're all different sizes and shapes and things, which is pretty weird especially if you're thinking of dinosaurs like birds. And since the only dinosaurs that are still around are theropods, the reduction in variability must have happened somewhere along that theropod evolution. Must help them in some way. Yeah, so it was helpful in the beginning to have this high variability, and they're postulating that that might have helped the dinosaurs expand rapidly after the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. And we mentioned that before, how right after dinosaurs kind of evolved, there was this extinction event and then dinosaurs really took over when it wiped out some of the other animals. So in the beginning, it seems that it was helpful to have a lot of variability, but then somewhere along the line, it became beneficial to have less variability. Although that does make you a little bit more susceptible to extinction, as we kind of noticed <laughs> at the late Cretaceous. So yeah. It's pretty interesting. We still need to do a lot more work before we can kind of determine how much variability is going on in different dinosaur species. And the biggest problem there is you need a really large sample and you need them from basically the exact same place because you want to make sure that there haven't been any changes within the species over time and that they're all from the same population. They're all eating the same kind of things. They're all either a similar age or at least the same group and there aren't other confounding factors making them look different. Yep, definitely interesting to think about. Next in the news, Smithsonian Magazine shared a behind-the-scenes look of the new National Fossil Hall, which opens in 2019, and we'll post a link so you can watch it. It's a bit long, but I still enjoyed playing it. I mean, I was playing it in the background for some parts of it, but the, uh, the part about the National Fossil Hall was very interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. So the National Fossil Hall was open for 103 years, and they closed it in 2014 to change things up. And during that time, a lot of new discoveries happened. Obviously, 100 years is a lot, and then you think about the discoveries that have happened just the last 10 years. <laughs> so along the way, they found a way to date fossils. Then the Chicxulub impact theory came up, and then the idea that there's this link between birds and dinosaurs came up. And when they closed the hall in 2014... The museum packed up all their skeletons, and apparently the Diplodocus had been in the same spot since 1923, <laughs> which is crazy to think about. And when they did that, they found murals by John Maternus from 1960 to 74, and he's still around, so he helped them figure out what to do with the murals. They'll be displaying some of them and making books out of them. And this artist also had in his house drawings of every animal in the hall a drawing for the muscle and a drawing of the skeleton that he had made. So the new hall, the David H. Koch Hall of Fossils Deep Time, opens on June 8th, 2019. And it will have a T-Rex from the Museum of the Rockies that they're leasing for a long time. Seems like they intend for this hall to stay open another 100 years. 
And other fossils in the new hall will include a giant fish with a fish in its belly, woolly mammoth hair, a fossilized lizard with skin, and a mummified bison. And they're working with Research Casting International. We spoke with Peter May in episode 102 about this. And the museum scanned their bones, digitized them, and then printed out the scenes that they wanted for Research Casting International. And now Peter May's company is creating them and will install them in the hall. And they gave a couple little tidbits about what some of the dinosaur displays are going to look like. We'll have to make it over there. Yeah. In the opening. Yeah, it was funny. In the video, he said something like, this is happening in 819 days or something. Like he's a little bit panicked about how much they have to do because they showed an interior shot and it's basically just torn down to the studs. Yep. A lot of work to do. Yeah. But it'll be worth it. I liked how one of their donors is, I think he's 10 years old now. He's been donating to the museum for a few years and he goes and visits on his birthday and gives mm-hmm. them some money. And so he kept bringing up like in a hundred years, like he'll be, oh, not a hundred years, but he's saying like 50 years from now, like imagine when he was just a kid, he donated and he could come visit with his family <laughs> and say, I was a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I Digital Times wrote about why Jurassic World 2 should feature feathered dinosaurs. The argument is there's more evidence of feathers now, such as the feathered dinosaur tail that was preserved in amber we talked about in a previous episode. So dinosaurs in Jurassic World and Jurassic Park, quote, are going to look very silly in a few years, end quote. The original Jurassic Park reshaped how we saw dinosaurs that no longer saw them as these slow lumbering creatures with dragging tails. So the question is, why not reshape our views again? Uh, Although we posted this and I know one of our listeners is like, well, it's They still made a lot of money, which is true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the middle ground is when we were talking with Brad Jost on Jurassic Park podcast, really what you'd need to do is introduce a new dinosaur and have that one be feathered. And then maybe you could phase out the old unfeathered ones. So you could put in like a Dakota Raptor or or a Uteranus or something and then just leave the old ones alone maybe for one movie or two before you really start feathering them up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought they were headed that way in the third movie because they had the quote-unquote velociraptors with just a few feathers on their heads. But then in Jurassic World, that was gone again. (laughs) So, yep. We'll see. Speaking of feathered dinosaurs, we mentioned the new show Dinosaurs in the Wild previously. And it's a live-action dinosaur animatronic show that's coming to England in June of 2017. And on their website, they posted a new trailer where you can kind of see something. It's basically just a T-Rex, but they do have it covered in proto feathers. And it basically has feathers around its neck and then down its back a little bit. So its head is still completely feather free, as are its legs. We're not really sure how feathered T-Rex would have been, if at all. We think that it probably had some at least proto feathers based on the family tree But, you know, how completely it was covered, we don't know because we don't have any good skin impressions or anything like that. And in the intro video, it roars exactly like a lion. And then its feathers around its neck make it look like it has a mane. So (laughs) it's almost like they've just changed it into a big lion. It's kind of funny. So Yeah, they're both predators. Yeah. Yeah, they might have had similar behavior, especially if they hunted in packs or something. I don't know. But... The tickets have gone on sale already for June of 2017, 
and that's for the Birmingham show. And those the preview tickets are 20 pounds a piece. And then after a little while, they go up to the regular prices, which is going to be 29.50 for adults and 26 pounds for kids ages three to 15. And then at the end of September, so after just a couple of months, they're moving to Manchester and it looks like prices are going to be about the same. So whichever one you're closer to, you can get tickets for right now. <laughs> and as a description of the show, their website says, quote, ride across the Cretaceous Plains through herds of huge dinosaurs like Triceratops and Ankylosaurus. Then come eye to eye with an angry Tyrannosaurus Rex. You've never seen dinosaurs like this before. But remember, if you can see them, they can see you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. directly calling out. <laughs> Are you talking about Jurassic Park and how like they couldn't see you if you moved? Mm hmm. I thought they were just saying that to make it sound spooky, but that could be. Could be both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounds kind of like it might be like the Jurassic World exhibition because it talks about how you kind of enter the scene. And so I'm kind of imagining a similar kind of thing, but maybe a little bit more realistic. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work out. It'll be interesting to see. Hopefully one of our listeners goes to it and tells us what it's like. <laughs> I think Patrick might already be gearing up. Yeah. So yeah, let us know, Patrick. Next in the most recent episode of the sitcom The Goldbergs, the character Barry wrote a new Hanukkah song for his school choir, which, by the way, was very inaccurate. He, in his song, which he raps, calls himself Judah Maccabean, and the song is called Dinosaur Hunter. And in the song, he rhymes... Tyrannosaurus with Chuck Norris mm. and in the video that he makes he beats up somebody in a pterosaur suit and then raps about how Dinosaur Hunter has a dragon who pet who fights for him so there's not even too much about dinosaurs but I did have to bring it up <laughs> did you have to <laughs> I think so the song's called Dinosaur Hunter I guess so and last, thanks to Patrick from Facebook for this one. The TV show Legends of Tomorrow may include dinosaurs in an upcoming episode, according to Comic Book. The showrunner Mark Guggenheim posted an image of the script's cover that had the title Land of the Lost. And there was a show called Land of the Lost that came out in the 70s and was about a family trapped in an alternate universe with dinosaurs. Yeah, I used to watch that show, or at least reruns of it. Well, you may have seen the revival in the 90s. They had that in a film in the mid-2000s, which starred Will Ferrell and Anna Friel. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie yet, but maybe it was the 90s revival. I'm not sure. Some theories on this episode include the characters getting stuck on Dinosaur Island, which exists outside of time. I'm sure they'll explain it. <laughs> so we'll find out come January when new episodes air, if this is even where they're going. Which I hope so, because they could do some cool stuff, some cool effects. Isn't that show about people that time travel? Yes. So couldn't they just time travel back to when dinosaurs were? They could, but they're saying it might exist outside of time somehow. Oh, okay. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, that that's how they get stuck. You can't just leave. Is this like a Marvel logic thing? You'll have to watch the show and find out. <laughs> okay. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. (laughs) Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Dr. Eric Morshauser. He got his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania under Peter Dodson, and he's now an assistant professor at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and he's worked with early birds, theropods, and most recently, basal neoceratopsians. So do you have a favorite dinosaur with all these different groups you've worked with? Do I have a favorite dinosaur? That's always, always, again, I'm going to do the thing that everybody does. It's always a tough one. Actually, though, growing up and not even growing up, actually, growing up as a paleontologist, I should say, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was, I was one of those people really interested in theropods. You know, I've, I've since reformed, <laughs> um, but no, I was, I was really interested in theropods. And one of my favorites is actually Deinonychus. That's a good one. And it's one of my favorites because of the original paper. Because one of the very first scientific papers I read was Ostrom's monograph of Deinonychus. <laughs> I had gotten a copy. I don't even know how. But I bought a copy of it and had it uh, when I had very little other like real serious dinosaur material. Not the number of book sh- bookshelves that, that shall remain nameless. But not the piles and piles that I have now. But uh, it was one of the first ones I got. And it was really interesting because it was, it was really interesting to read Ostrom working through the idea of what's going on functionally with the foot, what's going on functionally with the tail. Because everybody knows about the, you know, the retractable claws, the, the elevated claws of, of dromaeosaurs now, mm-hmm. with Velociraptor and Jurassic Park and everything. But nobody knew about it in the 60s. And Ostrom was the first, Deinonychus was the first animal they really figured out. They had a Velociraptor foot already. But it turns out that 
the second toe was, you know, one of the, the phalanges that really tells you what it was doing with the toe was broken hmm. and the foot wasn't completely prepared out. Uh, and you can see that in the original papers from the original Velociraptor paper back in the 20s. And so Ostrom's Deinonychus monograph, he's really just kind of thinking through that and, and talking about that functional capability. And I thought that was really interesting. And it's so interesting that that's actually not only one of my favorite dinosaurs, but the second phalanx of the pedal digit is actually one of my favorite in, in Deinonychus, one of my favorite bones. Yeah, um, because that's the that's the exact bone that has the morphology that tells you you've got something with one of these raptorial claws. So you just need to find that. You don't even need the rest of the animal. You can be <laughs> like, oh, I've got a theropod, probably, but at the very least, I've got something with one of these retractable toe claws. And so I think that's really cool. I think it's one of the the things that's really interesting in paleontology and comparative anatomy is are the the types of inferences you can make sometimes with limited evidence sometimes you can't sometimes you do but you shouldn't yeah. uh, or at least some people do and they should but it's really powerful just to be able to like in some instances no really you can know a lot about what's going on with an organism from a relatively small piece oh yeah yeah there was that recent uh review of some trackways in south i think it was in southern china and there were a few theropod prints that had two toes and they were like well mm -hmm. There's a good chance that that's some kind of dromaeosaur because, you know, what else has two toe prints like this? <laughs> they were like, there's a chance that one of them just washed away, but really, what are the odds? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's interesting. And you get this, this very distinctive morphology in places. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. So switching gears to Neoceratopsians, since that's your current bread and butter, um, so you were on the team that described Aurora Ceratops. Did you have to go over to China to do that work or did you manage to do it from the U.S.? No, so I've spent a fair amount of time in China. So I actually wasn't, I didn't name Aurora Ceratops. That was, that was before I was involved in Ceratopsians. Hmm. But when they named Aurora Ceratops, Yu uh, Hai Lu and, and Peter Dodson and actually Matt Lamana was on that paper who's down at the, the Carnegie just uh, just south of me. So he's kind of my neighbor now, <laughs> not in a literal sense, but at least he's not across the state anymore. But when they when they named Aurora Ceratops, they had a skull and a mandible. And the thing for me that's really odd is that most of the world still thinks of Aurora Ceratops as that skull and mandible. Hmm. Number of years after that. My Chinese colleague, Li Daqing, his field crew collaborating with a, a number of people, they found numerous specimens uh, in a slightly different locality that's only about, I think, 100 kilometers away from the type locality. They found a new locality, and it was just full of Aurora Ceratops. Um, and so we put out a little paper in 2012 just to kind of flesh out some of the anatomy of Aurora Ceratops hmm. using a just describing one specimen that had a, another, a different skull, but still a decent skull uh, and partial postcranium. Um, but we just have so much more. And so, you know, I kind of, I feel like I keep walking around uh, until these papers come out. You know, I do, most of the world doesn't know that. No, in fact, Aurora Ceratops is one of our, one of the dinosaurs. We have the, you know, it's, it's up there probably in the top 10 or 20 best represented dinosaurs. Wow. But nobody knows that yet. So, uh, and that's on me and I'm working on it. But yeah, so so I really, uh, in terms of, of 
opening up Auroraceratops and really describing its anatomy and, and, and figuring out the whole animal. I mean, that's kind of uh, the project that's been going on for a while and what I sort of my contribution to Auroraceratops so far. Cool. So are they all, there's the one head basically from one part of China and then you've got a whole group of them in another spot and that's so far all the places they've been discovered? Yeah, I think we only have material from these two. They're, they're in these two little structural basins uh, that, again, aren't that far from each other. Hmm. This part of China, the geology is a little bit challenging uh, in terms of the the actual biostratigraphy, the sort of figuring out exactly where in a particular set of rocks each uh, specimen lies relative to each other. Oh. Because what happened is, basically, long before... India collided with Asia, you actually have some like island arcs. Imagine like something like Indonesia or that was plowing into the south of Asia at this time, squishing it up uh, to the north. And then what that does on the sides, right? If you have something like ramming, you know, if you imagine like a really bad car accident, like in one of, I don't know, like one of the Batman movies or something, you know, uh, you have sometimes the, you know, if something gets, gets T-boned, right? The thing that's getting hit sort of bends around the mm-hmm. car that's coming in. This is basically what was happening, but with continents. And so mm-hmm. these little basins are getting torn open basically, you know, really slowly and not very, and, you know, not nearly as dramatic as a, as Christian Bale as Batman, but you know, they're getting torn open. And so you've got these two basins that are opening at nearly the same time, just sort of uh, a little bit separated from each other. Mm-hmm. So, but it gets really hard to trace rocks from one to the other and to get the the relative dates on gotcha. that. But, uh, but anyway, so yeah, so they're from right next to each other. And as far as we know, we haven't found Aurora Ceratops uh, anywhere else. Interesting. So the, that whole tearing apart was happening in like the middle of the continent as well as farther towards the ends? Yeah. Huh. It, well, again, you have to, you have to remember that again, this is stuff is joining essentially Asia from the South, mm-hmm. but there was no India there. Right. So you can take everything from the border from Nepal south and that just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so these things that are joining Asia, you know, are we're meeting it up somewhere in the middle of where the Tibetan plateau is today. And again, you've got numerous little things that sort of, you know, it's I, I like the term for it. Uh, when you have things start to join a continent, geologic terms called docking. Uh, and so you had, we had, there was some stuff docking uh, in the Cretaceous. And that's partly why we have these, some of these sedimentary basins in Western China from the early Cretaceous. So you get Aurora Ceratops from there. There's been an Ornithomimid, I think Archae Ornithomimus, uh, was, is from another one of these basins, uh, a little bit further to the east. And so that's, that's how you get some of this stuff, uh, that's in Western China. But yeah, so Aurora Ceratops is only found in these, these two little localities that are approximately two hours from the nearest substantial sediment. Yeah. yeah. I looked at a 360 degree picture from one of those basins and it looked mm-hmm. just like the Gobi desert. Is that in the Gobi desert? It is in the Gobi. Yeah. Okay. We're in the Western Gobi. So people sometimes call it the Trans-Altai Gobi because you get the Eastern Gobi, which is where say, like the original Satakasaurus mm-hmm. locality is Eastern Gobi. I think the uh, the Chinese uh, sort of Cretaceous red beds where you're getting Protoceratops, Helenocarinus, uh, as well as 
a number of other things really similar to stuff that we sort of think of as classic Mongolian yeah. uh, sort of late Cretaceous dinosaur faunas. Those are sort of more eastern Gobi where you've got these big basins and not as many mountains in between. And you get into the western Gobi and the basins start to get chopped up. And actually some of the other classic Mongolian stuff is also in the Transaltai hmm. Gobi. So things coming out of the Nemegd Basin like, like Tarbosaurus or Sauralophus that are coming from Mongolia – those are all also in this trans-Altai Gobi, though, of course, they're a lot later in time. Hmm. Cool. So is there yeah. a lot of differences when you have to, you know, go a couple hundred miles for ceratopsians? Or do you have to go, to, you know, between Asia and North America before you start to see big differences? Or are there not even significant differences anywhere? Well, I mean, it, it partly depends on what sample sizes you get. So again, the Aurora Ceratops, you know, we've got one skull from one basin and about a dozen good skulls and 70 or 80 individuals from the other basin. Wow. But with that being said, it's like, you know, what's the the variation you're going to see? Things that are roughly contemporaneous. You know, I wouldn't necessarily expect a lot. But it, you know, I feel like in a lot of those places time uh, is more important than distance when you're talking about things that are only a few hundred kilometers apart, you know, so you've got Aurora Ceratops there. Archaeoceratops came from the same basin, uh, as the original Aurora Ceratops hmm. skull, just a little bit different place in the section. And, uh, you've got a different early horn dinosaur there. Okay. So it's within a couple hundred kilometers. There isn't too much of a difference. You got to go a little bit farther. Yeah, I would think so. Again, it's it's hard because, again, our record, you know, you can sample place A and place B, but you got to make sure you're sampling at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, a li just a short distance in the rock record. It's like, oh, I'm like four meters, you know, five meters above. Well, if rocks are being deposited fast, that's not a big deal. If rocks are being deposited slowly, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm like half a million years later <laughs> or, you know, a million years later. I always tell people that one of the things about working in the Cretaceous is I have trouble with really short periods of time, you know, like the entire length of human history <laughs> or, or the Pleistocene. It's like, you know, people get all excited about, you know, Pleistocene megafauna and mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. And I'm like, yeah, it's really interesting what happened yesterday Yeah, <laughs> because it's like, you know, at, in the Cretaceous, it's hard to resolve timescales less than a, a quarter of a million years. Yeah. You know, it depends on, on how good your rock record is. North America, I'm sure we could probably get better resolutions there if you're really careful with your stratigraphy. Hmm. You know, the stratigraphy isn't as well resolved in my part of the world. And so it's, you know, we're working on trying to make that better. But it can be it can be difficult to try and find things where you can actually pin down your dates. Yeah, what do you use? I've seen some things where they use like marine fossils that were only around for a really short period of time. What other things could you do? to try to narrow that down. Yeah. So marine beds are really great. And that's probably one of the best things. That's one of the reasons why I say it's easier to do in North America. Because <laughs> of course we had that big Cretaceous seaway and it was, you know, it was transgressing, it was regressing, it was getting wider and shallower. And so all of your, you know, you've got all of your dinosaur bearing beds and you've got these big tongues of marine fossils. And then you can correlate those, the marine animals typically have much larger geographic ranges when they're alive, at least mm. some of them. And so it becomes really easy to correlate a rock in Montana that you, let's say, don't have volcanic ash for. And so you can't radiometrically date it and actually mm -hmm. get a number. But you can correlate it through these marine organisms to a rock in Italy where you do have ashes or a rock in China where you have ashes. 
And one of the things we don't have in Western China is we don't have a lot of datable ash beds. Hmm. Um, and we don't have a lot of these marine intertongues. And so we're trying to use the ashes and volcanic beds that we have as best as best we can. And the other thing you can use, some people use pollen. You can look, try and try and nail down plant uh, evolution uh, and sort of use that. You can use uh, ostracods, which are these little crustaceans, hmm. which, but the ostracods you can get in freshwater uh, and in lakes and things. So people use those for biostratigraphy uh, when they can't get marine sediments. The other thing that we're working on is we're working on using carbon isotopes to do it. Oh, really? Yeah, because there, there are at least a couple of uh, events since, since the, the carbon isotopes, they, they get incorporated into organic material. They also get incorporated into calcium carbonate. So they get incorporated into minerals mm -hmm. and they're getting pulled down out of the atmosphere. They interact with the global carbon cycle. So if you have times when you're burying lots of carbon somewhere, like in the marine realm, you maybe maybe you have a big marine extinction or a marine anoxic event where lots of stuff is dying in the ocean and all their carbon is just falling into the bottom of the ocean basin and getting buried. You mess with the proportion of different carbon isotopes in the global carbon cycle. And so you can pick up on that if you've got big enough events. Hmm. Uh, and so we've been trying to use that. And actually, um, as a paper I'm co-author with, it's really uh, Marina Suarez, who's at University of Texas at San Antonio. She's really done a lot of that work. And uh, we, we took some samples from, uh, from the Ujingtze Basin, from this basin in western China where we've got Aurora Ceratops, trying to correlate it to other basins in western China and then to the global, the global carbon cycle, this global carbon isotope record in the early Cretaceous. Just again to try and, and, and get the time frames in, in the better ballpark. Okay. So you're not necessarily looking at kind of typical carbon dating where you're looking at the half-life of carbon-14 or whatever, you're looking at ratios of different isotopes and trying to correlate that to other known places? Right, exactly. Okay. So you got you can you can get these carbon isotope records. We're looking at stable these are stable isotopes, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to radioactive ones. It's carbon carbon like 12. twelve and thirteen yeah. as opposed to dealing with carbon-14, which is, of course, all decayed long ago. Yeah, that's why I was, I was surprised when you started talking about carbon isotopes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these are stable ones. But uh, again, uh, plants sort of preferentially will use carbon-12 uh, over carbon-13. Hmm. And so if you start burying a bunch of plant matter, you start to enrich the global carbon pools. Uh, and I really hope I'm getting my numbers straight because I'm not the geochemist um, <laughs> in the, in, on the paper. So... But I think I think plants, many plants are preferentially using carbon twelve, and so you, when you bury a bunch of dead plant material, and really photosynthesizers in general, you bury a bunch of dead plant material, and then you start uh, to see these shifts again. The entire car it's the entire carbon cycle. So hmm. there's lots of things that can affect it. People use it as proxies for a number of different things, not just you know we're just trying to use it as look there was an event in the carbon cycle. And we can see that event in these rocks in, say, Italy. We can see these event in this event in early Cretaceous rocks in Utah, mm -hmm. which is where I know Marina Suarez has done a lot of work as well, working with Jim Kirkland, looking at at, at dates and and at sequence in in eastern Utah. And we can look at it now in in western China. That's really cool. Yeah, it's handy that you don't have to care what is causing these changes. You just care that there was a change, and you can see it everywhere. 
Yeah. And again, for in terms of the dating, it's like we're just looking for an event mm-hmm. that appears to be reproducible in a bunch of rock sequences where you can date it really well. And it's like, oh, this event seems to be synchronous, roughly. It appears to be global. Now we can go to these you know, these rock sequences, these loca- these places where we're finding dinosaurs, uh, or anything really, and say, okay, we can try and now line up these two records of the isotope changes and see if it fits in with any known events. Cool. But yeah, it, it really helps because I mean, some of these, these Asian localities in particular, where they're, where they're far from the ocean, we're not getting, even in the, in the Cretaceous, we're not getting this marine influence. They've been incredibly hard to date. And so, you know, the original age on Aurora Ceratops is, uh, you know, two periods from the Cretaceous, Aptian and Albion. It's a 25 million year period of time. <laughs> so it's like, well, somewhere in this 25 million year window, and we've got it down to a little, a little bit better in there. So, which That's is good. Funny. So how do things fossilize? Like, how do you get so many fossils in a spot where there's so little water? Because from my layman's understanding, the easiest way to fossilize something is kind of in a marine environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the marine environment, it's easy. But I mean, a lot of the things we're getting from terrestrial environments, they are fairly wet. Mm. Uh, and actually, the present day landscape, to the contrary, uh, it was a pretty well watered place uh, at the time of Aurora Serata. Mm-hmm. So this this part of Western China, which is incredibly dry today, we've got the only thing that happens, two things happen in our field area today. There's a coal mine not too far away in lower in the sequence in the Jurassic rocks that are there. Uh, and apparently we actually are excavating and prospecting across uh, pasture land, <laughs> which I look around and there, there's really just not enough vegetation for it to wrap my mind around, but it's camel pastures. <laughs> and so occasionally we'll wake up in the morning and there'll be camel footprints that are over the, the tire tracks that came in the night before or whatever. Hmm. So we know that the camels have been wandering around. I never, I've never actually gotten to see them. They're pretty, pretty skittish. That's I've really evidence funny. Of the, yeah. I've seen evidence of the shepherds too. They ride around on motorcycles. So we've got these like dirt bike tracks as well that again, from people and dirt bikes that we never see, but it's really dry now, but there were, there are stream beds, there are river beds, there's evidence of, of abundant plant roots. Uh, we've got root casts all around. So, I mean, when Aurora Ceratops was there, it's not as though it was dunes or, mm-hmm. or you know, scrub or anything. It was pretty well watered and, and pretty, you know, pretty humid, uh, or at least, at least somewhat humid, humid enough for, for abundant plants. It's really kind of funny. I think the, the rocks that they're buried in are very different than what I was used to working in it when I was doing stuff in Montana. But part of that is when you're looking at the rocks in Montana, you were 30 miles, 40 miles, 50 miles from the mountain front mm-hmm. in the Cretaceous. The entire basin that these Aurora Ceratops are coming out of is only about 30 kilometers across. And so the rocks look completely different because they basically just fell off the mountain and got carried down. Huh. And so it, it, it gives them a very different consistency but the environments actually probably weren't all that different except that, you know, the streams are a little bit smaller because it's a smaller, smaller catchment, smaller basin, closer to the source, that sort of thing. But it was actually a pretty wet time, near as we can tell. And people have sort of interpreted there's being a large lake in the basin. I'm not sure. I haven't seen any of the, the lake sediments in that, that basin I was in. There have hmm. been some other basins where, yeah, there are like evidence of big lakes, things that – Geologically, they look just like Fossil Lake in Wyoming, if you remember, if you 
heard of that one, right? That's in the Eocene, but you get those really laminated shales yeah. and you pick them apart and you can find insects. And some of the early birds from Western China are actually coming out of lake deposits that are approximately contemporaneous to Aurora Ceratops, hmm. just a couple basins over. So so what is the basin that Aurora Ceratops is in? It looks like a river kind of thing or can you tell? Yeah, so those, yeah, those rocks are all basically rivers and and the deposits from floodplains adjacent to rivers. And things okay. Like that. So, you know, the rivers are small for the most part. It's not like you get this big river deposit. It's, you know, a meter, two meters across. Mm. You can actually, in some places, you can see the cross section of the river channel that filled in because mm. the river's carrying coarser grain material than the stuff around it. So, you know, you've got these, these, these channels, you can even follow them because they're a little bit more resistant to erosion than the rest of the landscape. So a lot of times you'll have, you know, the channel just kind of there snaking across the, the badlands, you know, and this little, you know, pillar of rock or this small hill underneath it that it's sort of protecting from being eroded <laughs> away. You don't find too many of the dinosaurs in those, those stream bed rocks, at least not the Aurora Ceratops. The bone you find in there tends to be pretty beat up, mm. but they're coming from that stuff that would have been the floodplain. It would have been next to the river, adjacent to the river, in between the rivers. Gotcha. Sort of. And then you don't get the all the marine, or no, I shouldn't say marine, but you don't get the freshwater, I don't even know how to call them, freshwater fossils, I guess, because it's near the source of the river, so it doesn't have a whole lot of life living in it. Is that kind of the issue? Well, I mean, usually it's it's more of a preservation problem, okay. right? You know, you think of the stuff that you would find, you know, you, you've got things living in, say, a mountain stream. This isn't even a mountain stream, but imagine, you know, this is some kind of small stream that's coming out of the mountains and, mm -hmm. you know, you've got stuff living there. There's going to be fish. There's going to be probably some kind of crustacean, something like a crayfish. There's going to be insects. But what do they, what do they get preserved in, right? They're sitting among, you know, rocks that are larger than they are, mm. right? You know, they're sitting amongst pebbles and, and really coarse grain stuff doesn't really preserve small things very well. Sometimes it does. You can sometimes get it in there, but usually things don't get preserved where there's that much energy. Gotcha. If the, if the stream can move pretty big rocks, it can move, you know, dead fish or dead insects or parts of them really easily. And so things just tend to get mushed up. That's why you've got those. That's why people love those lake deposits hmm. because the water is relatively quiet out there. And so you get this really fine sediment coming down, and that's what can help sort of preserve in the detail of some of these fossils that you don't you don't often get in more coarse grain stuff. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. So, yeah. So yeah, here I go. <laughs> Dave Riccio would be proud now. Um, <laughs> he was one of my teachers long ago, and so I'm talking taphonomy. So you'd be <laughs> pleased with me. Cool. So. Speaking of, you know, learning new things, I guess, <laughs> at SVP, you presented on the phylogenetics of Neoceratopsia, and you had at least 32 taxa. How did you analyze so many different species and try to classify them? Well, I mean, the, the thing with a lot of these, these phylogenies, right, is that you're part of it's you go and visit them, you know, and that's one of the fun things, I think, about doing <laughs> this type of sort of taxonomy and phylogenetics work where it's like, okay, I have to figure out, I want to figure out the evolutionary relationships of these species. Uh, I have the descriptions. A lot of them are great. 
some of the published descriptions might not be so great, or I might want to look at things that just aren't in the figures, nobody talked about, I've got to go see it. So you get to go and travel, right? And so, you know, I was visiting early horned dinosaurs in Bozeman, Montana, at the Museum of the Rockies, and uh, Canadian Museum of Nature, and over in Poland, and the things in museums in China, in addition to the, you know, the animals I worked on in the field, uh, animals in collections in China. So you get to go in and, and see a lot of these specimens. And so that's pretty standard, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> but you, you go and you also build off of what other people have done. So, I mean, my analysis, I tried to take all of the different trees and character matrices that people have done looking at early horned dinosaurs and bring as many of those characters together as I could. I also went through and, you know, people haven't, you know, you, people write these diagnoses of species, right? You're describing a species. You try and talk about, well, you know, here are all the characters that make this species distinctive, right? If someone finds a new species, oops, some of the things that you thought were distinctive and they were when you wrote it, like that's legitimately something no one had ever seen before. Well, now we've got two things with it. Hmm. And if you wait long enough, sometimes it goes from being, wow, only this species has it to, no, in fact, these 15 species that are all, you know, somewhat in somewhat related, they sh- all share this characteristic. You almost have to go back then and say, all right, if I want to identify that species, I have to write a new diagnosis. I have to write this new description of, no, this is what's definitive on in, in this, in this particular species. It's important work to do, and it's work that doesn't get a lot of credit many times. And so for early horned dinosaurs, it's just, we've just been finding so many (laughs) in the last, you know, 16 years, really. You go back, you know, the first early horned dinosaur was Leptoceratops in 1913. And then there was, again, if we're not counting Protoceratops, which I'll kind of ignore that, (laughs) Protoceratops and everything up for right now. But you've got Leptoceratops in 1913. You've got... Montanoceratops eventually, which is really close to Leptoceratops. It was, it was originally thrown in with Leptoceratops, but in 1951, there's the really beautiful Leptoceratops specimens that they have in the Canadian Museum of Nature were found. And so they realized, oh, this thing in Montana from the two medicine formation is different than what we're finding in the, the later Cretaceous. So this later Cretaceous thing is Leptoceratops. The other one's Montanoceratops. Okay, we've got two genera now. And it more or less stays that way. You've got Cetacosaurus bouncing around and accumulating species and becoming the taxonomic mess that I don't touch. But, you know, you've got a lot of Cetacosaurus. But otherwise, you don't get a lot until the 1990s. Uh, and then you all of a sudden, you know, we've got Archaeoceratops shows up. And we've got new specimens of Montanoceratops. And I'm trying to think. Papers are all eluding me now. But, but it starts to snowball in the nineties. And then in the two thousands, it just starts going faster and faster. And so we've got now, now again, we've got tens of these early horned dinosaurs, but the last time anyone went through and actually went species by species, how do we diagnose these was uh, Peter McAvicki did it in 2002 in his PhD. And uh, it hasn't really been published independently of that. Cause again, I think there's just not a lot of, uh, you know, you don't get a lot of credit for doing that sort of thing. Yeah. It's kind of useful technical work, but you don't get a lot of credit. So for my PhD, what did I do? I did a lot of the same thing. And the tree that you saw was kind of the result of that, where I went through and I evaluated everybody's characters, including all the characters that defined all these species by formally recording them for all of the different specimens that I could get my hands on or that I could check in the literature. And then I assembled this 
this new set of characters and and then developed some got a, a new tree out of that so cool when you were yeah. when you were looking at all these species were there anywhere you looked at them and thought that one of them might be a juvenile of another one like how triceratops and taurosaurus are or I'm are trying to potentially think there's, <laughs> well there's a there's a there, there was actually one just back when i when i started there was one that was published and i haven't gotten a chance to visit the specimen so it's entirely possible that the publication isn't isn't representative but there's an animal that was published out of out of russia uh and it's it's a mongolian specimen and it's called gobi ceratops and uh, it's incredibly the skull is incredibly small which hmm. i mean sizes and everything as uh as jack horner would say as john scanella would say uh you know uh, as i would say but it has really large orbits for its body size it has a really short snout it's got a tooth count that's a lot lower than most other adult horned dinosaurs it doesn't have a frill again i call i think think of it as like a little golf ball with eyes <laughs> and it looks a lot like individuals that have been identified then you know those kind of features large eyes short snout lack of frill reduced tooth count you see that in lots of things that no one's really arguing are juvenile members of other ceratopsian groups hmm. so there's the there's the adorable little cetacosaurus skulls that are in new york mm -hmm. that are in display and on display in the aminate which i love that they're out there yeah those are um, great so they have, is that the one where they have a magnifying glass in front of one of them Right, exactly. They're just so small. Gobi ceratops, this, this skull that's supposedly an adult, which the paper claims is an adult, is just that small. Wow. So, you know, I think, I think you know, that one, again, I, I haven't seen it in person, so there's still the chance that I'm, that I'm wrong. I don't think they really marshaled a lot of evidence in terms of the, the fact, the age of that specimen. But a mm. lot of those features are a constellation of things that we see, uh, see in juveniles. So... There's probably you know one or two species out there that that may be juveniles uh, of others, but at the same time, you know a lot of them, a lot of these animals are coming from different, just different places and different places in the in the stratigraphic column. You know, I can think of uh, Aquilops as one. It's a North American horned dinosaur. It's actually the oldest horned dinosaur from North America. It was described back in uh, 2014, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aquilops is great because you can go and 3D print it. Nice. They've, got, they've got the skull out. The data is free from on, on plus one. The paper was on plus one. You can just go. You can get the 3D data for the skull. And you could 3D print your own little uh, Aquilops. And I actually did <laughs> because it's great. But, you know, the entire skull of Aquilops is only about five or six inches long. And they admit in the paper that it's like it's possible that it's a relatively young individual. It's hard to age skulls mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, we like to use histology. We like to look at bone microstructure to do it. The features that we use work best on long bones. Yeah. You, can, you can make some rough inferences from skulls. It's really hard to get a, a real solid age on, on a skull, at least right now. Again, you know, people could uh, look at it more and, and hopefully we'd be able to. But so that's kind of that's kind of hard because you have things that it's like, well, it might be a juvenile, but it's still valid. Hmm. it's still its own thing so we'll have to see whether anything gets shaken up on the tree certainly my my analyses don't shake up a whole lot of things that nothing i haven't found anything controversial that other people haven't considered as as controversial so okay what do you think of 
Triceratops and Taurosaurus in terms of whether or not they're distinct genus? I think it's a really interesting idea and a really compelling idea. And I really want it to be right. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, and, and I think there are a lot of specimens that I haven't seen yet. And, and so I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think the argument that Nidoceratops isn't something distinctive is, is good and fine. It's, it's, it's a something. It's probably a Triceratops. It's also an awful lot of plaster, which is a bit vexing. But a lot of old specimens, people were just like, oh, there's a hole there. Let me put some plaster on that. It's like, there went the useful information on that part of the frill. <laughs> you know, and I think, so I think some of the, the features that have been identified are really interesting. And again, I think it's a it's a very very much a live hypothesis and a good hypothesis. I just I want those transitional ones. Mm-hmm. I want really good, definitive transitional, especially transitional forms of the of the frill, where it's not an incomplete, like it, where it's just sitting there and it's just parietal fenestrae. Okay, good. And they're small, and there's histologic evidence that they're expanding. And here's the parietal. And it's tied up with one of these transitional squamosals that they talk about. And, and, and I just, I want, I want all that together and I want limbs that you can thin section and get histology off of the limbs that are associated with the heads, which is the thing that Triceratops never gives you enough of, Hmm. you know, it's always, you almost always like Triceratops postcrania associated with skulls would be really nice. I mean, either that or, or like everyone says, it's like, or a baby Taurosaurus, you know, <laughs> just, just something, something that, that gives us a nice split. That'd you know? be easier again, to find because then you just need the skull. <laughs> it's true. You really, you really just need the parietal. Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe you might need some more, but, um, but yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm, a, I'm in the camp that it's like, I really want more evidence because it's, it's, I think it makes a lot of sense, but at the same time. You know, it really is one of these hypotheses that's that sort of pushing our our understanding of of living organisms as well, because it kind of goes against our general understanding of how a lot of living organisms develop. These major changes in skull architecture that are proposed in the the Taurosaurus is Triceratops hypothesis are happening relatively late in life. Yeah, and while they're not like theoretically impossible it's not like this happens in every organism that we see we have a lot of organisms today that have this kind of determinant growth where it's like it grows and then morphology stops changing in a big way you might get some changes but you don't have things you know dramatically elongating these big cranial features late in life yeah big holes opening up in the skull (laughs) right and so there's there's a sense in which you know it's like it's it's i think it's fair to be cautious and again, you know, to be fair, you know, everyone's going out and is going and testing this, right? Folks from Yale are looking at, have looked at cranial fusion. Uh, you've got folks from Montana State and elsewhere are looking at the, the bone histology more closely to see is there evidence of bone resorbing, bone growing? Is there, is there actually evidence in these skulls of this major remodeling? And so I think that's, that's good. But all those tests now have to come back in, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, so I'm I'm a bit hesitant. And again, it's really hard because it's like, well, you know, the other thing is we have to distinguish between our competing hypotheses of is, is this morphologically distinct thing, a rare, but different taxon, which happens Mm -hmm. in some environments, or is it just a certain age stage of an existing taxon? 
And so I think it's hard to, hard to distinguish that sometimes. So again, I'm here waffling (laughs) and basically saying that uh, I think it's a really compelling hypothesis. And I think I've, I've, you know, I think the papers are out that are building it piece by piece, but I think there's room still for caution uh, in it. So, I mean, I think they've certainly done with the pachycephalosaurs. I think there's a a better case for some of the pachycephalosaurs that they've synonymized. Hmm. But actually it's interesting. You point that out. One of the other things I've been working on with Auroraceratops, we've got juveniles. Hmm. And our juveniles in Auroraceratops aren't following the pattern that's kind of been put forward by, by you know, Jack Horner, John Scanella, Denver Fowler looking at Triceratops and, and Ceratopsians, and Dave Evans and his colleagues who are looking at duckbill dinosaurs. Hmm. And they're finding these really parallel patterns of, yeah, the juveniles – have this distinctive morphology. They often have a bunch of characteristics that that look like they belong in members from the the base of the clade. You know, sort of primitive characteristics, if I can use the term. Mm-hmm. And they these juveniles don't look at all like the adults. And so you have to be really careful if you're using juveniles in your you know trying to do your family trees and things because mm-hmm. they tend to fall away from the adults in the same species. Auroraceratops doesn't do that. Oh, I've got skulls. I've got skulls that are half the size of the adult, and they look like they're young. They've got these big orbits. They've got these short snouts, but you know they've got a reduced tooth count. Nobody uses those things as phylogenetic characters because everybody knows that skulls, you know, vertebrates are born with these sort of cute faces. <laughs> right? They've got these big eyes and these short snouts, and you know. And so nobody uses those type of characteristics, but all the discrete characters that are distinctive of Auroraceratops are present in these little skulls. And so these juveniles are falling exactly with the adults. And uh, I think what might be going on there is I think the, the work by Evans and Horner, they're looking at dinosaurs with these elaborate cranial structures that are also appearing relatively late in life, these, these sort of possibly you know whatever their their function is whether it's species recognition or sexual selection or some kind of of you know sort of uh social role in terms of of you know identifying who's the dominant whatever in your particular social grouping Mm -hmm. but these all appear really late whereas the characteristics that define uh, aurora ceratops are actually mostly in the lower jaw and mostly related to chewing. And okay. so you've got this, you've, you've got this situation where it's like, that probably doesn't change. Yeah. And so these statements about, well, you need a really adult dinosaur to make sure you know what you have. But these situations where you have a, you sort of need a really adult dinosaur to know what you have, that might only be true if your particular group of dinosaurs depends on these elaborate structures to figure out who's related to who, mm-hmm. you know, cause you know, you know, sauropods, it's like if you had a sauropod with all kinds of crazy cranial horns and things, you'd have no idea. We could probably have an entire clade of sauropods that had crazy cranial ornamentation. Um, and we wouldn't know it because most of them aren't known from any heads. <laughs> and so so it's I think it's it's this interesting sort of counterbalance that it's like I, I think they're absolutely right that you have to be careful depending on what your characters are that distinguish your species. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. And if it's something functional, like if you were arguing that Taurosaurus needed those 
extra blood vessels or whatever in its frill in order to thermoregulate, then you would say, well, then it's probably not the same as Triceratops because it would have wanted it when it was two thirds the size as well or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if it was something, you know, totally unrelated that had to do with, with some, something functional, you know, mm. you know, I'm trying to think if you had, if you had radically different jaw mechanics between the two or something like that, you yeah. know, where it's like, no, it's, it's eating. Like <laughs> you, you can't have dietary shifts through growth. Herbivores tend to do that less than, than other vertebrates, hmm. at least, you know, in the basic sense of they're eating plants and they're eating plants as opposed to, you know, things like, you know, juvenile crocodilians, what are they eating? Oh, they're eating insects, they're eating little fish. It's like adult crocodilians. What are they eating? Some of them are eating turtles, you know, <laughs> deer. <laughs> right. Turtles, deer, invasive pythons, <laughs> you know, you get these, these wider ranges. Some of them eat mollusks, you know, you've oh, got, wow. you, you, yeah, you've got caimans and even actually American crocodiles will eat mollusks when they're adults. They'll just uh, throw them back on those, those rear teeth and, uh, and crack the shells. So you can get these dietary shifts, but it's, it's less likely that you're going to have, fu you know, fundamentally different types of, of eating. You're not going to be radically moving muscle attachment points around yeah. between juveniles and adults. So I think that's interesting that when you get to these sort of less spectacular dinosaurs, it might not matter as much exactly what on a genetic stage you're in. And again, you know, always limits on that as well. Hatchlings, you should probably never use hatchlings if that's your only specimen. Hmm. And you don't know what the adult looks like because they're going to be really different than, than the adult. Yeah. So. Speaking of eating, did you see the recent article by Darren Nash where he was talking about how ceratopsians might have had nose balloons? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. What do you think um, about that? I think... I, I think they have to be doing something with their nasal cavities because the, the ceratopsids, uh, again, you know, things like triceratops, but all of it, I mean, centrosaurians as well have these really big, just these enormous, in some cases, really enormous bony nostrils. Mm -hmm. There's, there's gotta be something going on there. And, uh, you certainly can have enormous, you know, bony nasal openings with a relatively straightforward, simple sheet of skin covering it and tiny little nostrils there. And you're still doing exciting things with that. You're doing lots of thermoregulation. You can have all these blood vessels and you're dumping, you know, it's a great heat dump, mm -hmm. which, you know, for things like triceratops, I mean, you know, adult triceratops or, you know, Taurosaurus or whatever Taurosaurus is, you know, they're big animals, you know, they're the size of an elephant, which you, I always thought of them as short being shorter, but you know, they're, they're almost as tall as an elephant at the shoulders at their, their biggest heights. These are really massive animals that are going to be generating a lot of heat and they've got to dump it somewhere. And sure they can dump it. You know, they've got frills, they've got tails, they've got some things you can dump heat in, but the respiratory system is really your best way to dump heat. So certainly that's going on, but yeah, things like triceratops, it's, it gets really confusing. I've worked on some, some triceratops specimens, I'm actually working on a, on a, Triceratops porosus specimen now, at least I think it's a porosus specimen, but the premaxilla, it's, it's been, the specimen I'm working on has been described by, by one of my, my co-authors as, yeah, it's a Triceratops that swallowed a grenade. Uh, so it saved its friends, but its skull is blown to pieces. And the premaxilla around that, that nasal opening, it just gets very confusing. It's heavily sculpted and there are all these excavations and, 
uh, when you have just little pieces of it, it can be really disorienting as to exactly where you are in this one bone where it's like, well, there's the edge of the, the nose and the edge of the mouth on both ends of this bone. But again, these, these cavities and these, these structures, it's, it's really pretty amazing. So the possibility that you've got some kind of, you know, elephant seal like proboscis or, or a snood or something like you have on turkeys, right? Something that, you know, could get engorged with, with blood or something. I think it's, it's certainly within the realm of possibility, you know, again, we just had Thanksgiving. I mean, look at a turkey that's, uh, uh, you know, from an osteological standpoint, that's a pretty boring bird, actually, for the most part. My favorite description now of, of Thanksgiving. Some I saw a greeting somewhere of, you know, uh, have a have a happy day eating your ugly dinosaur. <laughs> and I think I'm going to do that in the future. But yeah, I think I think it's certainly it's certainly something that's possible. Though I don't know why Triceratops, something like Triceratops, would need that with a frill and horns, you know. Yeah. But it certainly could could have something not not huge and dramatic, but it's like it could it could have, you know, some kind of inflatable nose pouches or or something like that. Or it could just all be blood vessels and, and a heat dump and it looks like how we always thought Triceratops looked. But functionally it's still a little bit cooler. Yeah. So it's got like a radiator up front like a car. <laughs> exactly. Well again, you get that big, you gotta put heat somewhere. Yeah. I think that's I think that's one of the beauties of of sauropods actually to switch taxa yet again is that it's like they so massive it's like we well, got to get heat somewhere but then you're like oh wait got a long skinny neck that's got a lot of surface area you can <laughs> dump some heat there you got a long skinny tail that's some more surface area that's good and they got their respiratory system weirdness so but anyway yeah dumping dumping heat's important so when you get that big cool i think i'm all out of questions is there anything else that you want to add the other cool thing about Auroraceratops is that we actually now know what these early horned dinosaurs looked like because everybody else that's around Auroraceratops is just heads. Hmm. And we now know actually what the body of one of these early horned dinosaurs looks like. It's a little bit more portly than I was expecting. <laughs> not too much, but it's not, it's not this long, thin, skinny body. It's actually, it's actually a fairly stocky little body. Hmm. still bipedal you know still has has your standard i feel like there's these sort of standard ornithischian hands that look like tiny little short fingered mittens but auroraceratops still has that but the body's a little bit shorter than than we would have necessarily expected and so it it looks like something that has kind of a bit of a big head for its body size not huge but still a bit of a big head uh, and again, I just I mention this because, you know, you have Cetacosaurus, and you have Yinlong and stuff further down the tree, and you've got Leptoceratops, but really those are like really far from these animals that are actually leading to most of Ceratops, you know, most Ceratopsians. Hmm. You know, Leptoceratops contemporaneous with Triceratops, it's been doing its own thing for a good, you know, forty million years, so. That's the cool thing about Aurora Ceratops. But I don't cool. know. So, yeah, so it's fun. I don't know. I, I'm trying to be a, a champion of boring dinosaurs. <laughs> because I feel like the, the little guys can actually still teach us a lot. So if people want to follow your work or see some of the stuff you're working on, is there anywhere they can go to see it? Well, if you have a lot of money, 
and you can fly. <laughs> My colleague Li Daqing did some work with the Gansu Geological Museum in Lanzhou, mm. China. And so you can go there and you can see some Auroraceratops there. The Auroraceratops actually, it's really funny. If you want to go and see an Auroraceratops, if you can get to China, there's a lot of different places you can go and see an Auroraceratops. It's sort of interesting. They've kind of gotten around from my, my colleague. And so there's uh, trying to think now. There's one on display in the Paleontological Museum of the uh, China University of the Geosciences, which is in Beijing. Mm -hmm. I don't think the museum gets a lot of foot traffic, but there's an Auroraceratops there in a glass case. There's one unlabeled in the in Nanjing. I'm trying to remember the institution that it's in now. But you can see them in Nanjing. There's a specimen in Hangzhou, which is a fantastic natural history museum. Hangzhou is just outside of Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they've got the Hangzhou Museum of Natural History, which uh, is, is a really first-rate museum. It's got really nice facilities. Is that one really new? It is relatively new, yes. It's in this big cultural center that they built in yeah. Hangzhou. It kind of has a an observation tower that's kind of this square-looking thing and then a semicircle of buildings. And just part of that huge complex is the Natural History Museum. Yeah, that um, place looked really cool. And I remember I was trying to add it to our map. We have a map of all these dinosaur museums. And I was looking at satellite pictures because I always try to make sure that the address is right and that the latitude uh, and longitude is working out. And one picture I found was just a town. And then you could tell where the photo got updated. And it was like brand new, redeveloped, all sorts of big fancy buildings. <laughs> and I was like, something happened here. I'll just assume it's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a story of a number of of places in China. Yeah. I went I first went there in 2005 as Beijing was ramping up for the 2008 Olympics mm -hmm. and driving around Beijing to go from one airport to a hotel to another airport and it was just cranes, tower cranes everywhere all across different parts of the city. They're just building building building. But yeah, Hangzhou's is relatively new and they've got a lot of eggs. There huh, a lot cool. of fossil eggs, thousands and thousands of fossil eggs. They're in uh, Zhejiang province. And so there's a lot of fossil egg localities near there. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, you can, you can see Aurora Ceratops in a number of places around China, whether or not they're labeled is a bit of a different story, <laughs> but that's where, that's where most of it is right now. You know, some of my other things, I think perhaps travel around a bit. The Dalian Museum of Natural History, which is where I, I did some work on that second specimen of Meilong, and they occasionally have traveling exhibits. So I saw once a bunch of their stuff in Montreal, Canada, in a tent, <laughs> which I was a little bit distressed about, but it was all there. <laughs> That's so, good. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So most of most of my stuff, you'd have to you'd have to buy a plane ticket to China to go see. Okay, I'm sure it'll, some of it'll make it over here eventually. One of these days. One of these days, eventually. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was a great discussion. Yeah, well, I, uh, I appreciate it. Got a, you got a great thing here. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Eric. That was a really fun interview. And I love it when we meander around to so many different subjects like that. It was a lot of fun. And I'm excited to see the new publications about Aurora Ceratops and what it's little tiny ceratopsian body looked like. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> exciting. <laughs> 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, you Streptospondylus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. The name means true Streptospondylus, and that means turned vertebra. It was a megalosaurid that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now England. The fossil was found in 1870 and at first was assigned to other genera. In 1870, some workers found a theropod skeleton at Somerton Brick Pit, north of Oxford, England. James Parker, a local bookseller, acquired them and then showed them to John Phillips, an Oxford professor. And Phillips described the fossils in 1871, but didn't give them a name. At the time, though, it was the most complete skeleton of a large theropod found. Baron Franz Nopska reassigned the skeleton to Streptospondylus cuviae in 1905 to 1906. Richard Owen had first described it in 1842, and this is based on it being related to the type species Streptospondylus altorvensis. Unfortunately, that was named based on very incomplete remains. Also, Frederick von Huene apparently sometimes called the specimen Streptospondylus cuviae and other times Megalosaurus cuviae. Alec Donald Walker renamed it to a new genus in 1964 to Eustreptospondylus oxoniensis, and the species name refers to Oxford. He also named a second species, Eustreptospondylus divsensis, in 1964 based on a French find, but in 1977 this was reclassified as the genus Piptosaurus. Eustreptospondylus is the most complete large theropod from Jurassic Europe so far. Only one skeleton has been found so far. And in 2000, Oliver Rahut found that there are only minor differences in the hip bones between Eustreptospondylus and Magnosaurus, which is another megalosaurid. And in 2003, he suggested that they should be the same genus. So Eustreptospondylus would be Magnosaurus oxoniensis. But not everybody agrees with this, as is often the case. In 2010, Gregory Paul suggested it was the same as Streptospondylus altdorfensis. Rudyard Sadler published a modern description of Eustreptospondylus in 2008. It was found on an island and lived when Europe was mostly made of islands, so it may have been able to swim. But not everyone agrees on this, and some think that it was just swept out to sea when it died instead of swimming to an island before it died. I've seen that before, the argument of whether things were swimming or if they just happened to end up in the water at the end. Yeah. The holotype is of a pretty complete skeleton and is probably a subadult. In 1924, the holotype was prepared and put on exhibit in an erect position, but this was changed to a more horizontal position in the early 2000s. It used to be thought of as a dwarf species, but then in 2000, David Martill and Darren Nash pointed out that it was a subadult and not a dwarf species, so it wasn't some kind of island dwarfism. 
Gregory Paul estimated that Eustrepticepondylus was 15.2 feet or 4.63 meters long and weighed about 481 pounds or 218 kilograms. It could potentially grow up to 29.5 feet or 9 meters long. It had large hind limbs and small forelimbs, and it had a pointed snout and large horizontal nostrils. It had a thick skull and tall, wide jaws. No teeth were found, but based on the tooth sockets, it had an enlarged third tooth in its lower jaw. Which is, I wonder what it used that for. It was carnivorous and bipedal and had a slightly stiff tail. It ate smaller dinosaurs and pterosaurs and may have scavenged for fish, marine reptiles, and other dinosaurs. You can see Eustreptospondylus in episode 3 of BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs. It shows it swimming. Also, one is eaten by a Leopleurodon while fishing. And then later, two of them eat a beached Leopleurodon, so circle of life. Also, Eustreptospondylus is featured in the primeval novel Fire and Water. As mentioned, it's part of the family Megalosauridae, which Huxley named in 1869 as a family. It was a wastebasket group, meaning it included a large variety of unrelated species like Dryptosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Indosaurus, Velociraptor. They tended to live in the mid to late Jurassic and in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa. They're cousins of Spinosauridae. Thomas R. Holtz offered an alternate group definition at one point as all dinosaurs more closely related to Megalosaurus than to Spinosaurus, Allosaurus, or modern birds. They're primitive theropods, small to large size, with sharp teeth, and they had three claws in each hand. Big predators are usually harder to find than prey, so there's not too much known about Megalosaurus. And our fun fact of the day starts with a question for Sabrina. What do you think is the deepest dinosaur fossil that's ever been found? What does that mean, deepest? Like, how deep did people have to go to get to the deepest one? Ooh. Whether intentionally or unintentionally. By that, it sounds like somebody was digging a well or something and stumbled upon. You're on the right track. Or digging for oil. How deep do you think they went? I have no idea. (laughs) You gotta guess. A thousand feet. It was about 1.4 miles, or 2,256 meters, and you're right, they were drilling for oil. Did you check the link before guessing? No. That's a good guess. So I'm just that good. I guess so. It's a portion of a Palladiosaurus, and it was found in Norway, and they were drilling for oil, and apparently it was also the first dinosaur that was ever found in Norway. (laughs) This was only in 2005. You just have to dig deep to find Norwegian dinosaurs. Yeah, 1.4 miles down. It kind of explains why you can't just find dinosaurs anywhere. Because sometimes you have to go super deep in order to get back to those Mesozoic (laughs) layers. They're not always just poking out of the ground like they do in Montana. Crazy. Yep. And on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening you want to join our growing community on Patreon, visit our page at patreon.com slash I know Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.